that it's people that work in education and that took the responsibility of leading an education system uh, are mainly optimists. If not, you cannot take the job. Hello, this is Books Driving Change with me, Matthew Bishop. And today I'm talking with Agustin Porres, who is uh, with the Varki Foundation, uh, which has for many years sponsored the World Teacher Prize, finding the best teachers around the world. He has uh, recently put together a book called Unfinished Business in Education, which I found an absolutely fascinating book because it is based on uh, interviews with 31 previous education secretaries from around the world uh, in all sorts of places um, and tried to get them to reflect, which I think on the whole, most of them do pretty candidly on their time in office and what they learned, what they achieved, what they failed to do, what they would advise people going into that role today. And then there's a very interesting essay at the end that Augustine uh, has written, drawing out some common themes. Before we dive into that, Augustine, I wanted you to tell us in a sentence, given the audience of this podcast is people who are interested in public policy and particularly public service as we look to, to come out of this pandemic and, and, and put the world in a better shape than it was beforehand, you know, why should they read your book? Well, thank you, Matthew. It's not an easy question, but I, I will say that it's, it's a book about real change. It's about real actors trying to do good, and they they very openly share mistakes. So what I got at the end is people sharing what they failed on that could help us to do better in the future. Yeah, I think that's a pretty accurate description. I think I, think I really came away with a sense of what you don't get often in, in public discussions of difficult policy areas, which is candor, particularly about personal failure by people who were in decision-making roles and how they have learned from that. Before we dive in, um, a bit more about you. I mean, what, how, did, how have you become interested in education and uh, what, what led you to write the book? I've been in education for the past 15 to 20 years now, and it has been always my passion and my call for service to be serving from education. I work in the, in the public sector, in the government for eight years, now from the foundation, and from different sectors, from different aspects to the education, I work in the classroom as well in the past. Uh, but I know this is my field. I can be working from different parts of the table, but this is my thing for sure. And then the book started just the third week of the pandemic, that we were all locked down and, and thinking about, okay, it's a time for changing education for sure. New things will happen. Instead of creating everything from scratch, why don't we listen to the people that have been managing the education sector, trying to understand if they can say, look, I tried to do this, but I couldn't. Maybe now is the time. Or I failed doing that, and now we can use the pandemic as a, an excuse to do some of the reforms that are uh, ready or that are on the table that we all agree that we have to that, that was the idea, to get to look into those pending reforms. But then many other things came up. Like the, the book was a journey. We got into 31 interviews. The team helping me was like, when we got into 20, they say like, that's enough. 20 is a good number. I say like, no, what we enjoy the most is the interviews itself. 
listening to these people. So let's continue. And we got into 31. They stopped me. They, they didn't allow me to send one more email. But I was looking forward to, to, to continue on that really learning journey. And just out of interest, how did you pick the order in which the interviews ran? Because you started rather unexpectedly for me with a, a Zimbabwean uh, education secretary under Ro Robert Mugabe. And then I think you ended more, probably more predictably, with Julia Gillard, who you know, is really probably a former prime minister of Australia and former education minister of Australia, who is now probably one of the most prominent voices globally on education reform and you know you have people like Arnie Duncan two-thirds of the way through who was obviously a President Obama's education secretary for most of his time in office so how did you pick the order yeah the order is exactly respecting the time first 7th of May we interviewed David Coulter from Zimbabwe and from 2020 and then in 2021 we finished with Julia it was David is a friend I contact him with just one question to start driving the conversation and, and building the other questions. Uh, and then we started connecting with friends and, and, and we go all over the world uh, and we finish with uh, Julia. But it's just the way they answer the email to, to my questions and we start the, the Zoom conversations, we respected that. Well, it works, but <laughs> even if even it's just chronology and randomness. But anyway, so I wanted to start where you you raised the issue of the pandemic because it is striking. You know, your your interviewees, these former secretaries of state. I mean, some were thirty years ago; they were in office or more. Others, much more recent. Every part of the world. Um, but I liked how each interview you did ask them. Well, you know, you're still most most cases still involved in education in some way or another how would how do you think the pandemic has changed things and i guess i was struck by two themes coming through one that in that there is definitely a crisis that has been brought about by the pandemic in terms of many children are are going to be hit by the the experience of the pandemic educationally and the other was this sense of opportunity to sort of rethink particularly the role, uh, you know, maybe accelerate the role of technology, but also do it in a way that actually empowers uh, teachers to, to be more like coaches and less like just fonts of information. Was that your sense? Yes, exactly. There is something that we can think about there, that it's people that work in education and that took the responsibility of leading an education system uh, are mainly optimists. If not, you cannot take the job. Uh, it's a crazy job. I, I was asking the Mexican former minister, how did you go to bed every day and, and, and rest knowing that 36 million people learning depends on you? They're like, well, I, I didn't rest much while being a minister. So these people took the, the position, being optimists and people that really want to change the world, knowing that it's really, really hard. So in the same way, that people see an opportunity in the pandemic and they don't uh, see it as a, it's a tragedy that they all uh, make a point about that, but they see the, the, the good part that we can drive some change that before was very hard to. And they say like some of the changes that they were suggesting, they have to fight them against other people in the cabinet. It's not fighting versus the opposition party to do a reform on education. It's convincing people in your own team 
uh, that they are not willing to or they don't pay attention to, to education too much. So in that way, that is the opportunity that they see. They say, okay, now uh, education is on the media every day and other ministers will have to pay attention. So let's use that, that opportunity. And, and for sure, the role of, te of technology, as you explained, is never replacing the teacher. It's helping the teacher to, to make better their, their role. Now, was it your sense that the former education ministers generally felt that the public had been really forced to understand how important education is by the pandemic, that it's increased you know, in terms of the public sense of what, what matters, the, the prominence of education? And, and secondly, how, how, I mean, my sense was there was a somewhat mixed sense of what the perception of teachers is, whether they've emerged as more appreciated by the pandemic or or less as we've all kind of been able to see close up what teaching looks like and I think a lot of parents particularly educated parents have said oh well I could do it better than that um what, what was your sense coming out of the interviews how how that's that that calculation is going to look yeah um on, on the second side of the appreciation of teacher for sure uh, they were all saying that this is not only the opportunity, but that this really uh, help us value more the teachers. And it's something that we need to leverage from uh, because it's, a, it's something that is really pending. Uh, they realize on the importance of teachers while being ministers and they have to fight uh, for that. Regarding the first point that you make, I will add to that that it's hard to communicate the reforms or the, the needs on education it's not something, last year that we were discussing uh, schools open or closed was easy because the conversation has two sentences. It's you like, it, you like them open or you like them closed. You want people to go to school or people to work online. It's an easy conversation. When we have to go into quality of education, exams, evaluation, learning outcomes, math, how to read, that discussion is very hard to have it on Twitter. You need to go much deeper. And that, uh, it's a complication. There is a huge issue on the communication of the policy, of the reforms and the transformation needed. Um, so the challenge now is, and they mentioned this, how we take it from where we are now that much more people got involved in the discussion into a more deeper discussion. And that is something that, there is no exactly a plan on how to do it. Many of the ministers mentioned this uh, on how to use the, the, the opportunity that we have, but the point of the communication, we're talking about the, the cultural battle, how to make education a priority for everyone on, on, on the media, on parents, on informal conversations. And there is a challenge there. We need to choose exactly the the battle or the topic because there are many around and what is the one that could help us uh, bring more attention to the school is bringing parents in how uh, and I think that is still a, a discussion that there was no like a clear answer from all of them in your essay you you identified four themes that you drew from from the essays the from all the interviews and I guess the first of those was that the purpose of, of education reform and policy should be student learning outcomes. That is the goal. 
uh, always. And and I, you know, my, my reaction, I suppose, was firstly, of course, and then is that controversial? Is it, so? Is that does that represent a different a, a change that there's this sort of general agreement across education ministers that um, the goal of all education policy should be student learning outcomes? Yeah. Well, I, I remember I worked for a minister in Argentina 10 years ago. And I remember after one year or one year and a half that he was in office, he called the team one day. I said, like, okay, when it was, yeah, almost almost two years. He said, like, okay, when can I start speaking about education? I have been talking about teacher salaries. I have been talking about infrastructure. I'm an expert on buildings and how to make better buildings. Okay, now the discussion on education, when will that start? And, and I think that's something very common. We discuss a lot of the teachers, of the, the teacher career, the conditions, what happened in the schools. Uh, if they have to go 180 days, 200 days, many of the discussions, all the IT, all the technology discussion is about devices or connectivity. And when we discuss, uh, how kids learn uh, and what we do for them to, to learn better. It's, it's, not, it's not an easy conversation or discussion to have. So many, many times it's a void. It's, it's not, we are discussing other things around. Of course, all of them help, but they're not directly talking about how kids will learn better. And as you know, to me, I think one of the thoughts that came out of a lot of the interviews was that as you shift your focus to, to be primarily on student learning outcomes, you shift it away to some extent from the traditional school classroom and to um, the teacher really being the primary driver and no one else really having to be involved into something that's much more of a community activity that can take place at home, it's out, in the, out in the open, around the world, wherever it is. And, and, and do you feel like, I mean, that are they still when they say these things as former education ministers, are they still ahead of public opinion? Are still ahead of what the mood is typically in a classroom in terms of where they think education has to go? Yes, I think that they use the pandemic to say a little bit more controversial things than in the past, but it's saying what you just said in a positive way, like people, student learns not only in the classroom, but also outside the classroom. And learning happens not only in the school, not, not behind the walls. It's also uh, online, in the houses, in, in the communities, in the clubs. Uh, and we have to put together, it's thinking on a broader image about uh, education that could work. Uh, and of course, the pandemic allowed us to say this before. If we say something like this in the past, it was like, no, you're talking against teachers. And no, we're not. We're talking pro-teachers, but in a, as you say, in a different uh, role, more like a coach, and also uh, not only in the in the schools. Like what we want to pursue is education, not schooling. At school, it's part of the education, something that is bigger. Mm. So, as I read all the the interviews, I mean, I guess one theme that came through time and time again was. You know, education reform is fundamentally a long-term process. It takes years and years before you start to show results. I mean, a second related theme was when they come into office, they really should pick one or two or maybe three, five, whatever, a, a few uh, goals and try and fix that, try and address those 
rather than trying to sort of do the whole system essentially and really prioritize and but and i guess the third thing was that for so many of these education ministers they really weren't in the job very long and so you had this really strange paradox of perhaps one of the more crucial long-term policy areas in public life in, in, the, in the health of, the, of, of future societies is being presided over by people who I think on average one, one study said you know are in office for two years so what I mean yeah. firstly, firstly why are they in office for such a short period of time I mean that must be worse than most other cabinet positions in terms of tenure but how do we how do, what, what do you conclude about how to manage as a society the fact if we're going to keep having that short tenure at least you know we, we need to get the long-term policy right and with people who are not in the job for long yeah it's a, it's a critical issue uh, uh, and it's those things that it's all over the world happen the same it's not I thought before starting the book I always say that this happened in Latin America. Now I can say that it happened everywhere, uh, and it's an issue. Uh, on the conclusions of the book, in, in point number three, that we talk about the governance of education, I really say that we need to think on different ways. Um, there is a province in Argentina uh, that has few water. So water is a scarce resource. Uh, and they build the Department of Water, and it's a six-year term. And the governor, it's only for four years. So the guy managing the water is more important than the governor. Uh, and people realize how important is water, that you don't want that to be managed politically. So they make the place more independent and for a longer term. Why don't we think about something like that in education? Of course, it's, it's very political and we need the political support. But why don't we set up the place more safe to have a long term. There is another issue. One minister told me, when you write to the minister, you have to think about if you want to make the reform or if you want to apply for a next position. If you are now the minister of education and then you want to be governor or then you want to be finance minister, okay, half of the decisions that you need to make, you're not gonna make it. Because if you need to uh, rescue your, or, or make it safe your political career, you will not get into many fights that are needed for education reforms. So the only way you will make a great job at the ministry is if you choose that this is your last position. And that is not always the, the, the case. So we need to think about how to save the place and also give more relevance. Um, we know uh, we did an informal study pursuing like how much time spent the different ministers with the president. The finance minister goes every day to see the president. The education minister goes once a month. Uh, so it's uh, it's not all on the political agenda, the, those reforms. So unless we change some of those things, is there relevance that the president gives, that the people in general, that only a few of us are crazy about education and we're pushing these topics every day, but on the normal life, it's not an issue. Or we make it an issue or we stay uh, how we are today. There was a nice anecdote in, uh, I think, one of the Argentine ministers of education who said, you know, he was horrified when the economy minister quit um, over the president backing education <laughs> reform. And, and the president said to him, well, 
you know, lots of education ministers quit because of the finance minister. This is a real story. Yeah. You, know, well, yeah. you know, that when the finance minister quits because of the education policy and, and you know, get, for good reasons. And so, I, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, it is a, I, that, one of the problems is that these people in, who go into education uh, as, as ministers, um, it, it's not the glamour job in the cabinet, is it? It's not going to, and it's a slog. <laughs> But the other lesson I think that came through was, you know, that really a lot of them recognised that there's not much point in pushing forward a reform if you haven't built some kind of broad bipartisan or multi-party consensus and a broader consensus with the, all different constituencies in society because um, the nature of the beast is... Uh, your reforms will be undone yeah. pretty quickly by the next government if they have a different party mix or even just a different personality because these reforms take, take so long to get uh, results that, that, that simply they're very vulnerable to being reversed. And so you have to try and build that consensus. Did you draw any lessons on, on what that means? Yeah, no, it's uh, the failing of most of the policies is because of that, because... It's very hard to build a, a, a policy that remains. Policy are driven by politicians, by people, by policymakers who are like, they design something because they trust and they push it forward. I like the, the former minister of New Zealand told me like, what is your recommendation for the next minister? And he said like, I will ask him at least keep one of my policies. So he was not ambitious to say like, no, I did everything okay. Uh, maintain my my team or say, keep one choose one policy and and, and keep it safe for, for me and I, I like the, the way the humble way he approached that uh, because there are many things that were thought and and, and are are much better to remain that it's also expensive to try to change uh, again um so I I think also there, some of my conclusions after that is we need a different kind of training for the people to, we don't have many uh, school policies training the people that is working on the ministries. Uh, so we need to take it to a next level on the training uh, and the professional career of the people at the ministry. Uh, because it's not only the minister, are the teams and how if we have better, yeah, people more prepared there and for a long term, uh, there are less changes over time because we are suffering that a lot. So another theme that came up was the sort of talent challenge, not just in policy making and government circles, but also you know in the in the profession, whether it be at you know school managers or teachers in the classroom. And you know, I suppose two themes came up. One was that the need to you know, get not just better people, but better training and you know, people equipped uh, to, to draw new people into the profession who have the talents to coach, but also then you have this huge legacy population of teachers that may need to be, uh, you know, have their skills modernized and, and so forth. Um, and then this countervailing theme, which, you know, I think won't surprise anyone who's looked at America or, or European politics and or Latin America or whatever. I mean, the unions seem to play often quite a blocking role um, in terms of you know, efforts to increase the you know, quality and talent and training 
um, of teachers. Where do, where where do you come down on all that after having talked to all these former education ministers? The the first point it's absolutely critical training teachers and the the reform that that requires. It, it's something that a lot of them mention, but we don't have many proof of huge changes on that. The way teachers are trained is the same for for many many years. And why, and that help us to, to put together your previous point, training teachers is a long-term reform because you will discuss the training. You will train new teachers that will go into classrooms in six, four, four, six, ten years. And, and the changes, so one of the small changes for a, that will have an impact in 15 years is, is that. Uh, so maybe that's one of the reasons why we don't see many changes on the teacher career or in the teacher training, because it's okay, the, the impact is too far away. But um, again, it's something that many of them take uh, or bring up. Uh, the experiences that we saw there are more on the in-service training, that you can do some changes, some uh, kind of upskilling, but we need to think about in, in our countries in, in those long-term reforms for sure. And then the, the, the role of the unions was very different. Some of them have a lot of, of conversations, some of them almost fights without conversation. Uh, I think today unions has, have less representation on teachers, so they are a, a, an actor, but it's not the only one representing teachers at the, at the table. Uh, and, and they have focused a lot on the salaries and not on other policies, and, and, and we need to broaden the, the conversation. I like the, the Philippine minister who said, like, um, if we, we need to discuss. When we discuss, we solve half of the issues uh, that when we don't discuss. And then I like the approach of the Portugal former minister who said, like, I'm the head of the students' union. Um, because in the table, you have the unions for teachers, you have people from the ministry, many interests, but who is representing the kids? Okay, I'm representing the kids. I'm the, for, for me, the minister is the head of the union of students. And uh, I like the approach of thinking on the minister as a representing. It's going to the first point we made about focus on learning, okay? If we really want to focus on learning on student and as student outcomes, uh, the minister will have to be fighting for that as a priority. But am I right in concluding from reading these uh, interviews that everywhere there is a crisis of talent in terms of getting the right people in to education? And, and is there anyone that has a solution or do you have a sense of what the solution is to that challenge? One of the impressions of the book is that None of them, none of the 31, is happy with the results. They are all looking for more. From Argentina, we see the Portugal, number one in Pisa, we say, okay, they are doing well. And when you talk to the minister, he's like, no, this is a disaster. We need to change everything. So there's unconformance uh, and, and people willing to, to achieve more in general. So no one get to the stage of, okay, I'm done on, on this. Uh, what I, what I will say there that it's helping on on the finding better talent is the ministers who put together 
more diverse teams uh, as an experience. So bringing people from different fields, uh, not only the pedagogical experts and the people that has been on education for 40, 50 years. Uh, and I recall the case of Peru, Jaime Saavedra, that say that he brought people from finance, from engineering, from different mindsets to put together and think about the reforms. I think that helped a lot on the recruiting of talent uh, for the future. And one last question for you. I mean, as you've been in the education world for, wouldn't say, 15 years or more, and you've talked to all these people who've been in education uh, leadership as, as ministers, what would you say to somebody now who's thinking about, you know, they want to they want to commit themselves to public service in some way. They want to maybe get involved um, in education. What 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 advice would you give them? Don't don't do it alone. Uh, you have to go with others. You you need to be part of a team because they're as you say you can, you can choose one two three reforms, but at the end you have to manage 30, 40, 50 other issues every day, uh, and you will not achieve them. And, and you can get very loose in that uh, arena. So go with a team, find other people with your same uh, goals, people that you can trust because building trust in this, among these fights is not easy. And I suppose one thing that we, we haven't talked so much about and just oh, we'll finish on this is, I mean, there obviously are some success stories. And in fact, many of the ministers, the former ministers that you talk to have success stories. I mean, did do, do you come away, you know, you talk about being an optimist, being an essential precondition of getting involved in, in being an education minister. I mean, did, do you, did you find your optimism increased as a result of doing these interviews? Yes. Uh, and, and because of the people that I met during this process. Uh, I, I interview people from different political perspectives, from the left, from the right, uh, people that before I admire, and people that I don't trust enough before the interview. And I, what, I, what I found during the process is amazing people. I said, like, amazing to listen and to learn from these very committed people, uh, that decided to get into the fight, uh, put their own prestigious on, 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 on risk because uh, people criticize them and uh, don't trust. Um, and that, that helped me, like finding, having great people around is critical. Uh, I think about that on my team, like being around great people is fundamental. And I think education has people that is very committed. Uh, we need to come together uh, more often, more closely, and, and, and work together more as a team, but we have uh, amazing people uh, around, and, and it's important to learn. What I also found is uh, we don't learn enough from the mistakes, the failures, and the successes of the, that people. I will say each of the ministers receive a, a hundred calls every day while they are in office. And after they are in office, they receive three, four a day. So everyone was calling and, and you always want to have an appointment with the minister. The day they are former ministers, not many people go. And there is so much to learn that we, we cannot lose that opportunity. They know so much. We need to call them and ask them much more often. 
Yeah, I certainly agree. I think it'd be great to see a whole series of books talking to uh, former ministers in a whole series of different public policy areas, because I think there is, you know, if we can get the same degree of candor and, and confession to mistakes and lessons learned, I mean, I think it would be a terrific, uh, terrific um, value to anyone interested in public service or public leadership. Anyway, we must draw it. We must come to close then. Um, Augustine, thank you so much. Uh, it's a terrific book, fascinating. Uh, it's called uh, Unfinished Business in Education uh, by Agustin Porres with the help of 31 former education ministers. Thank you for talking today with Books Driving Change. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you for reading the book and the, and the good comments and the nice conversation. This is Arabella Meyer, Editor-in-Chief of Driving Change. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please leave us a review and rate us. And if you'd like more, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about us, please visit us at drivingchange.org and follow us on social media at underscore driving change. Until the next time, this is Driving Change.